Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number nine, Conceived in Liberty, Abraham Lincoln Gets Back to Basics. And with me in the studio today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, you don't have to. Luke? Well, it's, it's always intimidating to take on the uh, perhaps the most famous and most profound piece of American political oratory in the Gettysburg Address. And part of the profundity of the document is that it very explicitly and self-consciously tells Americans that America is a story and that it is a story with liberty at its heart. In many ways, it is the uh, public rhetorical version of the argument that your book is making, that there is a that there is one America, that it ha- is a nation, that it has a national character, that that national character is conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I like your saying story so much better than creed. Mm. Now, creed is a, a static thing. It's axiomatic. You say, you recite it, but a story is a story. It also has a beginning, middle, and presumably an end, but while you're listening to the story or in it, you haven't reached the end. And so by dent of the fact that Americans are hearing someone talk about an American story, the story hasn't wrapped up. And as we know, all things in the world eventually come to an end. So too will all of the things in front of us pass away. There will someday not be a New York City. But for Lincoln, there is a very clear sense of time in the Gettysburg Address. And he's saying it with time being of the essence politically. He's coming into 1864. Uh, It's several months after the battle. They're they're dedicating the battlefield. Um, And he is very much aware that the the sense of the trajectory of the war the day before the Battle of Gettysburg is fundamentally different than the sense of the trajectory of the war the day before he gives the Gettysburg Address. And with that notion of narrative and structure in mind, he gives this incredible speech that you know, school children have been memorizing and reciting since probably immediately after it was right. published. What was 
the situation in the war, the situation in the United States, what was Lincoln's political position and what was the, the status of slavery the day before Abraham Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address? Well, he has already issued the Emancipation Proclamation. That had gone into effect January 1st, 1863, so before the battle, before the speech. And that was a very narrowly crafted uh, presidential proclamation done under his authority as commander-in-chief in time of rebellion. That was the very narrow legal ground that he felt he could stand on to do this. And what he did was he freed all slaves in those parts of America that were still in rebellion. So that means the slaves who lived in slave states who hadn't seceded didn't apply to them. It, the slaves who lived in seceded states, portions of which we had recaptured, like eastern Virginia, southern Louisiana, didn't apply to them. Uh, Andrew Johnson, his vice president, had gotten an exemption for his home state, Tennessee, didn't apply to them. But the remainder, slaves in places that were still in rebellion, all those slaves were free. Which is a practical matter means it freed zero slaves. Well, that's right. But it does tell them, you know, sit tight. When our armies get there, you will be free. Or if you can shake loose and or get if to you our can, lines. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Your, your, freedom is, your freedom is guaranteed. So that had already uh, been done. Meanwhile, though, the war is going on. Uh, there's uh, tremendous fighting in Virginia. Uh, the uh, Confederacy makes its uh, second attempt to invade the North, the first ending in Antietam. Uh, they strike up into Pennsylvania and by, by accident, uh, the two uh, – the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of Potomac uh, encounter in southern Pennsylvania. There's a three-day battle which the Union wins fortuitously on the 4th of July and the same day that Vicksburg falls. So uh, Lee has been defeated in the east on the same day that Grant has, has really cracked the Confederate hold on the Mississippi River in the west and it is the 4th of July. I mean it's like the triple – the trifecta, the triple conjunction. And Lincoln, of course, you know, he realizes this and he sees the, the possibilities of linking this with American history. And he gives uh, some impromptu remarks uh, at the White House a few days after the battle and he says, uh, how long ago was it? Eighty-odd years that America declared its independence. OK. The Gettysburg Address is in November. He's had time to do the math. So – he, 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 in very King James language, says four score and seven years ago. But he is, he is deliberately linking uh, the cause of the union to the Declaration of Independence and he's also at the end linking it to the preamble of the Constitution because he ends with government of, of the people, by the people and for the people and that is looking back to – we the people of the United States of America in the preamble. So in, a, in like 272 words, he's shoehorning both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution into his remarks and linking them to the union cause and linking them together as explanations of what America is about and how it works. It's a, mar it's a remarkable piece of public rhetoric because it is so short. I mean the brevity of it is tremendous and while 
the middle of the 19th century was a period when people were much more accustomed to reading a lot for their entertainment. Um, people read sermons. Sermons were printed. And that was not uncommon. Speeches, even very long ones, were printed. So, you know, what would pass as a an interminable political speech by 21st century standards would have been fairly short by 19th century standards, and yet the Gettysburg Address is short by 21st century standards. And so it's it's this incredibly brief speech. Why? Why? Why the brevity? Well, partly uh, his were the dedicatory remarks. His was not the main event. The main speech had already been given uh, by Edward Everett uh, who was acknowledged to be the greatest orator in America at the time and he had spoken for two hours uh, and he had described uh, in detail the course of the battle. He, he had reviewed it. He would also put it in its context and said what, what it was all about and what it meant. So, so he had done all the detail work. Uh, even if Lincoln had had written out a long description, he he probably would have you know canceled it after after hearing Everett because He'd already that, had, yeah that had already been done. His play by play guy had already. Yeah, stepped that's in. right. So uh, you know, and if you read Everett's speech, it is good. I mean, it it is not uh, you know it suffers by comparison, but it it is a worthy worthy effort, and and Lincoln appreciated it. So, so there's that. Uh, I think also uh, the issues were very salient in people's minds. He, he didn't have to do what Everett did. Maybe even Everett didn't have to do what Everett did because there were 5,000 caskets sitting right there, not yet buried. The, the reason for, for the speeches was to dedicate a cemetery to, to reinter bodies that had been hastily buried after the the battle um, and and that were being dug up you know by grieving relatives who wanted to find my son, my husband, wild hogs were forging over the field and you know digging up corpses and eating them. I mean it was just an awful thing. So there, there was this decision made by the state of Pennsylvania and other states have to have an interstate commission bury these people properly. Uh, the War Department supplied the caskets. they were all sitting there. So you know you could see what had happened. It was still fresh in people's minds. So what people needed was not so much recounting, not so much description. They needed why and for what purpose. I remember reading a historical account of the speech many years ago and it struck me just how grisly and macabre the setting was that, that Lincoln and all of the, those gathered – I mean it still smells, right? The, the mm -hmm. battlefield still smells like death and – you no trees either. No trees. They've all right. been shot to pieces. Exactly, and so it's it's just this scarred landscape that that stinks of the the consequences of battle. Um, but of course, you know, Lincoln is writing a speech not just for the people who are sitting there. To what extent is the Gettysburg Address something written for the Northern reader, distributed all over the country, that can show up and sit on the first page of a newspaper because it's so short? Well, certainly it's for that and, and you know, Lincoln is a politician so he knows that one year from now, uh, people will be going to the polls and voting on him mm -hmm. and all his Republican colleagues. So uh, no politician ever forgets that. I'm sure that was in his mind. He's also addressing the world, I think. You know, it's not just Americans who've been watching this. The world has been watching this. 
and and Lincoln uh, he does uh, allude to the to the question: Will uh, our form of government perish from the earth? And I think there it's a very light allusion, but but he's alluding to the fact that we are the largest republic in the world. We are facing this this terrible crisis. Uh, can can we continue? Uh, will we split apart? If we do split apart, that's that's an argument for the anti-republicans of the world. Ah, look, see, doesn't work so well after all, does it? Uh, and these are not um, reactionary ghosts who have been uh, defeated. There, there is an ongoing struggle in Britain as to who sh who shall vote. How wide should the franchise be? They'd gotten rid of all the rotten boroughs, mm -hmm. you know, but still, working men couldn't vote. Yeah, the Reform Act of eighteen thirty-two only expands the the franchise to something like twenty percent of of free men. Right, yeah. right. So, right, so there's that uh, France has become the second empire. You know, they had a second republic which lasted not very long at all. And who's running it? Napoleon's nephew. And also, by the way, he has slipped an army into Mexico. While we're, you know, duking it out up here, he thinks this is a great time to put a Habsburg prince on the throne of Mexico. So there are, you know, reactionary forces in the world and and forces of freedom and they're, they're watching the outcome of what's going on here and sort of placing their bets accordingly. Lincoln knows it. Lincoln is using language, phraseology, uh, uh, a rhythm to his, to his speech that is, as you mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier, drawn almost directly out of the King James Bible. What, what is the sort of scriptural foundation for the, for the Gettysburg Address? What is he trying to invoke to his readers? Well, I mean the detail of, of saying uh, uh, four score and, and seven, I mean that's uh, the days of our life are, are three score years and ten and if by reason of strength they be, be four score years, it is but labor and sorrow. That's the 90th Psalm. So that's where, where score as a unit of time you know, comes from. But uh, he is saying you – know, by, by endorsing the notion of the declaration – that all men are created equal, he's, he's incorporating the uh, argument from divine intention that Jefferson, unbeliever though he was or you know, sort of not caring about it though he was, put in the Declaration of Independence, laws of nature and nature's God. And so, so Lincoln is uh, you know, incorporating all that into his statement. By, by identifying July 4th, 1776 as the national birthday. Was Lincoln himself a believer? Ah, Lincoln's religion. It's a complicated subject. Yes, I think he was becoming one again. Maybe not again. I mean his mother did say uh, in an interview she gave after his death that he didn't seem to care about it when he was a boy. And certainly Lincoln, when he's uh, in his like late teens, early 20s, he's uh, much taken with Thomas Paine. You know, and all organized religions are terrible and they're full of contradictions and, you know, the Bible is just a mess. And, and Lincoln makes arguments like this when he's a young man. <laughs> There's even a story that he wrote a Paineite pamphlet and he was showing it to some pals of his when he was a postmaster. 
That meant you sat in someone's store and, and that's where people brought the letters and, and you sent them out. Then the owner of the store, an older man, asked to see uh, Lincoln's manuscript and then he put it in the stove because he knew that Lincoln was already interested in politics and you might not go far in, in <laughs> Illinois in the 1830s if you've been writing a tax on the Bible. So you know, fortunately for Lincoln and for, for all of us, uh, this black mark on his political resume went, went up in smoke. But uh, I, I think any serious student of, of Lincoln sees that uh, certainly by the time of the Civil War, uh, he is thinking about these primal religious questions in a very serious way. Uh, he sees the war as the fiery trial. Uh, he's always a determinist all his life. Uh, he, he thinks our actions have been – his little catchphrase is the motive was born before the man. So even before you were born, everything you've done will do is the result of a chain of actions that goes back and back and back. And if you have a logical cast of mind, while well, you get to the prime mover. You get to God who gets all this going. So therefore, reasons Lincoln, God must want the civil war to happen. He's allowing it to happen. It must be part of his intention, part of his plan. Why is this? Why, why are all these Americans killing each other? And why can't I stop – why can't I, Abraham Lincoln, stop it? And maybe I, Abraham Lincoln, have encouraged it to happen. I mean it's this, this weight in his own head. And then the second inaugural address in 1865, he will say, this is the payback for slavery. This is why this has happened to us. He seems to internalize all of the kind of fatalistic Calvinism that the, that the Puritans who showed up in Boston would have been familiar with and the, maybe, maybe the Mayflower Pilgrims too, right? You know, this right. Kind of well, his, um, his parents were Baptists but their particular Baptist church believed in predestination. And you know, Lincoln uh, shucked the church but he kept the predestination. Yeah. No part. Arminian that one, no. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. But he um, – He's calling back to the ontological, if you will, assumptions of the Puritans here in terms of the of, of a vision of a divine providence pushing humans to march along like stars in their courses towards a destination that only the Almighty understands. He's also though calling back to a much more contingent moment, a political event which breaks open the world, which is of course the American Revolution and as you alluded to earlier, linking the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution and he's trying more or less – and it's a bit of rhetorical sleight of hand here – but to redeem the founding as not intrinsically corrupted by and stained by the condition of slavery which has broken open the Constitution, created this war. We've gone back and forth sort of in previous episodes about this. Is Lincoln right? Is, is he successful in redeeming the founding or is this a necessary – is this a noble lie? I think he's more right than wrong. You know, I think if you did a head count uh, of the founders and the framers, there, there, were, there were certainly among the slave owner holders, among the many slaveholders among them, there were probably those who thought, well, this is just fine. This is the way we live. But more of them would have thought – yeah, this is you know this is a contradiction, and you know thankfully it will wither away because tobacco is really declining, and we'll be out of this hopefully soon. And then there were founders who, 
if they'd owned slaves, had freed their slaves, and there were founders who had never owned slaves. John Adams never owned a slave. And they all signed off on the Declaration of Independence. And they could read. You know, they knew what that said. I mean, it wasn't saying, you know, uh, you, Edward Rutledge, have to free your slave now on July 5th because you signed this. But he could read that. All men are created equal means all men are created equal. And, and so they, uh, with whatever parts of their minds and with whatever mental reservations, they all signed that. And Lincoln is reminding us of that. Lincoln spends the next year aggressively prosecuting the war. He brings Grant from the West into the East. The Confederacy has been encircled successfully, which was the plan from the get-go, but it took them two and a half years to get there. Um, conscription is introduced. There's considerable domestic violence and resistance to it. Uh, the, the lethality of the war accelerates after Gettysburg um, and yet in 1864, of course, he's reelected. The Republicans keep control of both houses of Congress. McClellan goes down to defeat as, as the Democratic candidate. Accommodationism of the South as a northern program effectively ends with that election. In January, Lincoln gets the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery over the finish line. He, of course, at that time doesn't know that he has four months to live. No one does. Three and a half months to live. What – what is the connection between the 13th Amendment and the Gettysburg Address? There's an obvious connection to the Emancipation Proclamation. But you don't – this isn't a chapter about the Emancipation Proclamation. It's about the Gettysburg Address. It's the new birth of freedom. That, you know, he talks about that in the Gettysburg Address. and I think some people twist that into a birth of new freedom, that he's kind of canceling the founding and saying, well, they didn't, they didn't do enough, not far enough, so, so we're going to really get it right. I think he's saying, no, they were right. They were on the right track and now we're going to get it right. Now we're going to get them right, building on what they did. We're going to get it right. And so the 13th Amendment, yes, that's the follow-on to that. And even beyond that, last speech Lincoln will give, uh, he says that he – the first time he says ever says in public, he would prefer that the constitution of Louisiana, the first state, you know, coming back into its full status in the union, he would prefer it if black veterans and the very intelligent could vote. And one of the people who hears that on the White House lawn is John Wilkes Booth. And he says to one of his pals, that means nigger citizenship. That is the last speech he will ever give. And he makes good on it. Of he course, makes good on it. Yeah. Ford's theater. Um, Lincoln, of course, dies. He's a political martyr for the case of, of – Freedom, freedom in many respects does not advance as a practical matter. Slavery is abolished. The 14th and the 15th Amendments are passed. The 14th Amendment in addition to all the other things that it does soaks the South economically. The North occupies it militarily for more or less 12 years in, in some parts and less in other parts. And we have the rise – the ugly rise of Jim Crow and, uh, and white supremacist terrorism by the Klan and other forces in, in the South. It's in this moment before we've seen the decline and collapse of the project of liberation after Lincoln's death, um, when Lincoln is alive or immediately after his martyrdom, that a world of possibilities seems to open up to overcome the booths of the world and in fact create a, a much more um, 
just and equitable vision of citizenship for all Americans or at least all men. We, we had the Seneca Falls Convention chapter already. It's Martin Luther King Jr. who 100 years after Gettysburg looks back to the Gettysburg Address and talks about the Constitution, the Declaration and the Gettysburg Address more or less as promissory notes to all Americans of this, that, that liberty is guaranteed to them through these promissory notes. What is the value of promissory notes to Lincoln and is he aware that he's making essentially issuing a promissory note in the Gettysburg Address? Oh, yeah. Well, I, th I think he believed that the Declaration and the Constitution were promissory notes and he's, he's coming to cash them in. Uh, and the value of that is it lays down a marker. You're putting it in black and white and some people are putting their names to it and a lot of people are giving their lives for it. So it means something. If Lincoln had lived, would we view the Gettysburg Address differently than we do now uh, or is it in part because this and the second inaugural are temporally close together and then close to his assassination that imbue them with the kind of mystical force that and reverence with which we view them and do we lose something about the potency and effectiveness of these as political and uh, you know ideological if you will rhetoric because we cloak them in in you know uh, in Lincoln's martyrdom well Look, had Lincoln lived, then then he would have had four years of his term, and and he had to he would have had to deal with the beginning of Reconstruction. You know, Grant, uh, who succeeds Andrew Johnson, gives it the old college try. He really does try to make it work, but the Johnson administration was was disastrous. Uh, Lincoln would not have been disastrous. He would have had a hell of a lot to deal with. But Lincoln is a very good politician. You know, among other things, he is a very good politician. He's a very good vote counter. He's very good at holding the Republican Party together. People more radical than he is. People more conservative than he is. Uh, he, you know, he very good at keeping them together. So, it would have been our best shot. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called the American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.